Namaste. Today I am here to present my paper on the work of Professor Wendy Doniger as a part of the SI conference on the 10 heads of Ravana. Many of you would have perhaps heard her name in the context of the much publicized banning of her book, The Hindus, an Alternative History, over its controversial content. While the banning evoked various reactions across the spectrum of ideologies, many in the so-called right wing welcoming the ban and many on the other side condemning the ban, etc., one thing surely happened. It provided unprecedented publicity to the book and boosted its sale when it finally reached the market again via another route. And one other thing surely did not happen, a greater scrutiny of the body of her works in the Indian academia in a balanced academic manner without resorting to ad hominem. Notwithstanding the huge publicity she received over that one particular book in the Indian media, is Professor Dorniger to be studied by Indian academicians? When Rajivji first proposed holding Swadeshi Indology conferences to put Professor Sheldon Pollock's works under the microscope, to do a proper Purva Paksha and give a rebuttal, and when we started to invite scholars to take part in the exercise, we encountered a good range of responses. And the same holds true, true for Professor Doniger's writings. This body of work is ignored by a section of scholars saying it is only academic. And who will really read it? And nothing of this sort can hurt Sanatana Dharma. It needs to be recognized that she wields a great influence in the academia and on the general public, both through her writings and through the students she has trained who produce similar oeuvre on a large scale. One needs to recognize that the trickle-down effect from the academia to the popular narrative to the culture of a population needs to be critiqued and refuted at the top if we are not to lose the narrative down the stream. Professor Wendy Doniger holds the Mircha Iliade Distinguished Service Professor of History of Religions at the University of Chicago and she has numerous publications in her 40 plus years of academic career. Many of us would know about the Freudian paradigm that Professor Doniger applies in many of her earlier works, the overtly sexual interpretations of the most cherished and sacred of our symbols and texts. I have taken up one work of Professor Doniger which does not mainly deal with that framework and I have critiqued some of the arguments she makes, the underlying assumptions, the translations, etc. The work is Against Dharma, Descent in the Ancient Indian Sciences of Sex and Politics, published from Yale University Press in 2016. This is a book that juxtaposes three texts mainly, the Manusmriti, the Arthashastra and the Kama Sutra and discusses the element of dharma or rather the lack of it as handled in these three works. In a nutshell, she aims to build a narrative against Arthashastra and Kama Sutra by positioning them as subaltern texts which attempt to break the, and I quote, stranglehold of dharma, unquote, imposed by Manusmriti. First, to get an idea about the book, it has six chapters. Chapter 1 has discussion on the Purusharthas, the chronology related to them and fixes the one is to one relationship of these three works, Manusmriti, Arthashastra and Kama Sutra with the three Purusharthas, Dharma, Artha and Kama respectively. It is here that we first get a glimpse of the talk of intertextuality, hidden transcripts and the like. 
The second chapter puts forth the premise that the Kama Sutra derived a lot from the Arthashastra. It compares the structural similarities and the similarity in content of the two texts. Chapters 3, 4 and 5 discuss in detail how Adharma is an undercurrent in the two texts and how it was snuck in, so to speak, even as they overtly talk of Dharma. The final chapter is on how the two texts essentially espouse the Charvaka philosophy, albeit covertly. The epilogue speaks of how these two texts have lived on to the current day and surprisingly, or not so surprisingly, ends on the note of how science is getting subverted in the present-day India, what with nationalism being on the rise and the current government in power. There are many chronology-related issues in the book, which is not the focus of my paper, but I would like to mention here one or two of them. She dates, for instance, the Ramayana being composed between 200 BCE and 200 CE after Ashoka's reign. She starts with the premise that Kautalya who composed Arthashastra was different from Chanakya, the chief counsellor of Chandragupta Maurya. She talks of Shastras having been composed from about 6th century CE. Well, questions arise about what Shastra she is talking about. Panini's Ashtadhyayi is easily dated to 5th century BCE and there was continuous production of Shastra works through many centuries. She also displays the classic claim big, retract small, when she puts an end note on this last mentioned claim that the Ashtadhyayi may have been as old as the 4th century BCE. She does this without even mentioning that Panini himself mentions a great living tradition of Vyakarana, which means that there must have been texts received by him through his Guru Parampara. Other issues like Kama Sutra assumed to have followed Arthashastra based on similarities and based on the fact that Arthashastra does not mention Kama Sutra anywhere. Kama Sutra is placed a century later without giving any substantiation as to why only a hundred years. When she compares Manu and Kautalya at the very beginning of the book, we can see some predilections in the general method of her debating the authorship of texts. She assumes multiple persons and layers as in the case of Arthashastra and assumes otherwise elsewhere as in the case of Manu as per her convenience, again without giving any reason for that assumption. The basic question of course is whether these three texts are to be compared at all. On the one hand, it is a useful exercise to see how a politico-socio-economical manual like Arthashastra considers the nuances of dharma spelt out in a dharmashastra book like Manusmriti. One might say that Manusmriti contains generic instructions on guarding dharma, while a specialized text like Arthashastra contextualizes that for its own specific field. On the other hand, blindly comparing different fields whose purposes and hence methodologies too are completely different is not only useless but misleading as well. Throughout the book, Arthashastra and Kama Sutra are invariably pitted against Manusmriti and sometimes even against the Mahabharata and sometimes against each other. The structural similarities of the two texts, Arthashastra and Kama Sutra, are repeatedly stressed and this has also been used in a way to underscore the joint adharmicness of both, supposedly going against the dharma that is espoused by Manusmriti. 
She also tries to bring in a neat one-is-to-one mapping of the three Purusharthas with the three texts, Manusmriti with Dharma, Arthashastra with Artha and Kama Sutra with Kama. But this kind of a tight mapping itself is a problem. She also claims that amongst the three aims of life, Artha and Kama are entirely thisworldly and Dharma too is primarily thisworldly while working within the shadow of the other world. While, and I quote, Moksha is not a part of the worldly realm of the Shastras. Unquote. Even a rudimentary knowledge of the Indian philosophical tenets will tell us that Kama is an element that figures both in the Purusharthas, that is aims of life, Dharma, Artha, Kama and Moksha, and in the Arishadvarga or the six enemies, Kama, Krodha, Lobha, Moha, Mada and Matsarya. It is good to note that Kama is not the first in the aims of life, but is sandwiched along with Artha and is placed between Dharma and Moksha. Sri Ranga Mahaguru gave a beautiful analogy to explain why the four Purusharthas are in this particular sequence, namely Dharma, Artha, Kama and Moksha. He said, Artha and Kama are like a naughty cow, which needs to be tied between the posts of Dharma and Moksha in order to milk it for the Amrita that it gives. Also note, that Kama is the first among the six enemies. Well, if one looks into the Bhagavad Gita, Gita Charya clearly states Dharma Viruddha Bhuteshu Kamosmi Bharatarshabha. Dharma Aviruddha, meaning that I am that Kama which does not go against Dharma. And also, Dharma is so much more than religion and separating the otherworldliness of Dharma from its thisworldliness and placing it alongside Artha and Kama presents a very skewed image. If Dharma is for a community and the next two are individual pursuits, as she argues, where will Swadharma get classified? There are a couple of other points that I make in the paper. She cites two other authors to describe how much less crooked Machiavelli was compared to Kautalya and Vatsyayana, commenting that Kautalya makes Machiavelli look like Mother Teresa. I only wish to draw your attention to Christopher Hitchens' work, which shows with proof how Machiavellian Mother Teresa was, and I leave you to draw your conclusions. She also misrepresents the Purva Paksha tradition, stating that the authors of the two so-called subaltern works cite the Purvacharyas only to disagree with them. Well, Anyone who has learnt even the basics of the Indian intellectual tradition will know the usage of Kechit Paksha, or some say. Kechit Paksha is very valid. When the scholar of the work summarizes the position of a particular Paksha, but doesn't want to name that Paksha out of propriety, because the scholar might feel that it might be treated as an ad hominem attack. And respectful disagreement with the Purvacharyas is the hallmark of classical Indian Shastraic texts anyway. We now come to the part where many practicing Hindus will have a problem in reading Professor Doniger's works. The mistranslations, whether deliberate or out of ignorance, that vilify the symbols and traditions that are revered. We all know about Rajivji's work on Sanskrit non-translatables, both as a section in his book being different and as a separate book. And you are presumably familiar with the issues with translating such terms. There is a Note at the beginning of the book against dharma 
about using words like dharma adharma etc not translating them however she employs a tactic which is much more insidious than merely translating the word as religion and using that she assumes a particular meaning of dharma which would be applicable only in certain contexts and uses the word dharma to mean just that one thing while tacking on other concepts such as ethical social etc so in this book we come across expressions like ethical dharma well would there be unethical dharma then theological dharma etc which can be classified as nonsensical were they not so dangerous i also give an example from her mistranslation from the portions of ramayana where rama is purportedly criticizing his father for and i quote giving in to young wives sexual blackmail unquote and using one of her favorite tactics which is stripping the words of their context to produce an effect to claim that rama saw that and i quote his father's values were entirely upside down unquote we do see some criticism of her translations in the academia such as that of professor michael witzel but that is no longer available anywhere on the internet the details of that criticism can now be found only in uh, the wendy's child syndrome essay of rajiv ji and the book invading the sacred now we move on to misinterpretations to make her thesis that arthashastra and kama sutra are subaltern texts she repeatedly states that her pro- their proclamations about dharma is mere lip service and hence denies what these authors are explicitly stating in their texts she imposes her own interpretations again and again which is not unlike the 3d philology of professor sheldon pollock but this is a cruder brother while most of the works she quotes to substantiate her arguments are from her own ideological kinsmen she quotes from others too like professor sk day but she interprets his words to suit her argument now here is an example a reading of professor day's words with the preceding and succeeding paragraphs will clearly show the truth of the matter professor day says it's worth noting that generally speaking while the dharma shastra was always anxious to note and reprimand transgression and enjoined sadachara or proper behavior as determinant of conduct the idea of sense enjoyment and desire for wealth in accordance with the shastras of artha and kama remained more or less unaffected well what do you and i understand from this yes dharma shastras reprimanded transgression and were on the stricter side but people did enjoy artha and kama in accordance with those guiding texts just reading day's words in the previous page sets out the import even more clearly he says the impression that is given by vatsyayana's work as a whole is that social life if it gained in material prosperity and aesthetic culture was still controlled in the main by the ideas of the dharma codes but she has interpreted as many of the ideas in these texts were antinomian or transgressive challenging the dharma tradition and often amounting to a tacit incitement to adharma i need not go into the details of her views on the bhagavad gita etc and those views coloring her interpretations moving on let us see how language is used to exploit the fullest potency of words in this work 
the hidden transcript was designed to challenge the stranglehold of dharma note the stranglehold of dharma kautilya to maintain power vatsyayana to facilitate pleasure in both cases without letting dharma get in their way machiavelli himself is not nearly as machiavellian as they elsewhere more precisely their prose chapters containing down to earth often undharmic instructions are capped at the end by one or two verses that express dharmic exhortations contradicting the point of the preceding prose finally there is the method of imposing foreign frameworks to indian texts this is something we have seen with other indologists as well she for instance uses the concept of hidden transcripts to read into ancient texts i will not go into uh, the details of any of these concepts due to shortage of time the concept of subaltern view then of course there is the freudian framework a quick summary of this last mentioned the notorious approach doniger has popularized is to superimpose the freudian framework onto indian texts a bbc article based on her interview in 2002 sums her work up and i quote all her special works have revolved around the subject of sex in sanskrit texts unquote indeed seeing eroticism in any text that she picks up seems to be her favorite light motif in her works like mysticism and eroticism in the mythology of shiva and other works translating linga as phallus is consistently done and she takes up many traditional texts like puranas and kavyas to weave theories around lord shiva and eroticism a brief glance at some chapter titles is very illuminating such as incest of shiva apparent lust of an ascetic erotic powers of an ascetic and so on there is a whole lot of scholarship within quotes that has developed from the doniger school of thought i may just mention jeffrey kripal who has written on shri ramakrishna paramahamsa and of course devdas patnaik here and the literature they are producing are either going uncontested or when they are rebutted the rebuttals are being objected to on several counts such as those who are responding are not academicians that the criticism is coming from those supporting violent hindu right wing ideology etc and finally some do use a victim card for themselves against rebuttals as a catch all as well now the way ahead to conclude we have seen that opposing a work by commoners through ad hominem does not work and neither does the legal route on the other hand rebuttals that have come from professionals in other fields but who are practicing hindus that have skin in the game have also been ignored for not being academic even though the credentials of the academics who are busy interpreting hinduism are questionable for the arbitrariness of their methodologies and the fields that they are pulling out their frameworks from the indian academia is either oblivious to these works or ignoring them for various reasons ranging from it does not matter to i don't want to break ranks first there has to be a knowledge of what is happening that such works are influencing the narrative drastically has to be known then there has to be a desire to want to set the record straight to want to academically rebut what is pushed academically 
then finally it has to translate to effective action or kriya detailed critiques of these works are necessary by basing them on traditional texts and frameworks by trained insiders who have skin in the game in order to set the narrative right this is the only way forward to level the playing field and bring back balance as it has been so well said in pratigna yogandharayana dharma hi atnaif purushena sadhya dharma is possible only with the exertions of an individual i am one of the many whose eyes were opened to this world of indology and the narrative setting that it does on a global scale through the writings of shri rajiv malhotra i would like to take this opportunity to to thank rajiv ji for his vision i would like to thank the organizers of this conference and in particular shrimati divya reddy for all the coordination and the other work that she has done in connection with the conference and thank you all for a patient hearing namaste